This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello and welcome to Killer Innovations, where we are all about ideas, creativity, and innovations. And where we introduce you to top innovators who share with you their stories so that you can take your ideas and change the world. A couple months ago, I hosted an event up in Keystone, Colorado for about 600 people. Uh, it's an event that we hold annually there, um, really discussing tech innovation and, and other things. Um, the event's been going on for more than a decade, and I've been hosting it for the last four years now. The challenge is how do you keep an event uh, or any creative endeavor fresh and interesting? Uh, one common approach when you think about events like trade shows and those types of things is you always hear the terms like, oh, just make it like TED. Now, I've been going to the main TED event for years, and even they are challenged to change it up. Chris Anderson, who runs TED, um, put out a challenge a couple of years ago to all the what he refers to as the TEDsters to criticize and, and, and provide input on how they need to uh, change it because repetition is boring you know when you start doing the same thing so many times and if you've got such a, a great event like TED and then everyone wants to look just like you then it's hard to differentiate now when teams get pushed they tend to respond that you know when you talk about whether it's an event or a product or you know something that's already been existing for quite some time the immediate answer I always get is is well everyone just loves this product or widget or conference so there's no need to do anything too radical and they may not like the new thing um, or it's easy we know what to expect you know we have the process down pat we know how to do registration and all those kinds of things and guess what the world changes and your ideas and innovations need to change with it you know look we all get caught in a rut you know, we tell ourselves that it worked for us last time, it's going to work for us the next time. But experience is not always a good thing. Um, education, in some cases, um, is not always a good thing, right? We, we, we fall back on what we learned in school, what we learned on our previous jobs, and we do things that make us comfortable. But that is until it doesn't work, and then what? Now, here's a little bit of a, of a side tangent. When a company calls me to come in and help, you know, and I get these calls from everything from startups to Fortune 25 companies to come in and they're stuck. They don't, their innovation agendas is not producing. Their innovation pipeline is empty. Um, they're in a crisis. You know, typically they're in a crisis mode. You know, no one calls me when things are going well. I get the phone call, um, and assuming I can even fit it into my schedule. They're usually in crises. So why must an organization fail before it is willing to change? You know, so how do you kickstart ideas in an area that you're very comfortable with? Well, my first piece of advice is you don't. It's not about better brainstorming an idea because familiarity is more likely to be incremental. You're just looking to make that slight little change. If you want to go bold, do something extreme to really get the ideas going. In my personal example, you know, every two to three years, I go on a month-long trend safari, really in search of inspiration. Now, what does this entail? Typically, I pick three to four events that are outside my industry. I prefer to string them um, as really as one long trip if I can, but sometimes I, I can't do that. 
But the objective is to come back telling a story to anyone that will hear me. The, the excitement, the inspiration I saw, the, the crises of like, oh my gosh, this is what's going to happen to the industry if we don't do something. And more importantly, the ideas of the solution. What could we apply? Now, I tend to think visually. That is because of, of uh, my background. My original major in college, my dream in college was to become an architect. And I also do a lot of amateur photography. So I take loads of photographs, loads of videos. And I like to collect samples, you know, actual physical items that I can bring back, things that people can touch, you know, something like an archaeologist out there digging things up. And I look for weak signals. And these are the emerging trends, things that cause me to ask, you know, what is that and why did they do it that way? Things that are a hint of something new that is coming. Now, let me run through some of the events that I go to. Well, one of my absolute favorite events to go through is the Milan Furniture Fair. Now, some of you have already like going, oh my gosh, why would he go to the Milan Furniture Fair? And no, it has nothing to do with my dream of, of being an architect. Um, the Milan Furniture Fair for me is really about colors and shape and new kinds of materials being used in all kinds of experiences. These are the things that consumers are going to be buying two, three, four years down the line to put into their homes. And so if you're building, if you're doing a consumer device or uh, something that the consumer is going to buy, you have got to stay in that trend. You've got to stay in the wave of changes. And the first place to see that is the Milan Furniture Fair. Now, it typically is in April. Um, and again, it's an absolute phenomenal event. I love it. Second for me is the London Design Festival, usually in September. Now, this focuses on industrial and product design. Um, this is uh, some of the top product designers, um, not only showing their collections of things they've worked on. They do a lot of futuristic looks, but they also do a lot of historical looks also. Now, here's my advice. Even if you never make it to the Design Festival, if you are ever in London make sure you go to the London Design Museum. It's one of the top design museums in the world. And I always, if need be, I'll stay an extra day just to make sure that I can run over to the London Design Museum, spend a day there. They have a phenomenal cafe on the first floor. Um, you can spend the day there um, looking at the new exhibits and really getting expired. Some of the other events that I like to attend, Par Paris Fashion Week, if I can, the TED conference, which I never miss, is in March, usually in Vancouver. I also go to the Detroit Auto Show, where the new vehicles are being announced, particularly when it's the, the new colors or the whole new design, or where I really focus in on is the concept vehicles. What are those design elements that we're going to see in things like automobiles two, three, four years down? And how's that going to influence what we also do? Now, the one event that some people may think is a little weird or strange is Comic-Con, which is in July in San Diego. Now, for me, albeit I am a big computer gamer, I used to run the gaming division at HP years ago, for me, Comic-Con really is about cultural trends and pop culture. What are those things that... Um, based on the generations that people can emotionally connect to. 
What are the things that they're really passionate about? And when someone's willing to walk around in costume, in some pretty outrageous costumes, you'd have to assume they're pretty passionate about it. Now, now that I've been talking about it, you know, running down this list, I think it's about time for me to put together uh, another trip coming up. So I've always enjoyed it more when a few people are with me. So maybe I should, I don't know, maybe I should set up a trend safari for a group. What do you think? Uh, Would you be interested in going with? Um, Who knows, maybe we can pull something off and uh, open it up for uh, a whole bunch of people. My past trend safaris, I've done Tokyo and Beijing. I've done uh, trend safari just in India, looking at both the tech sector, but also the rural areas. I've also done trend safaris in Africa and Western and Eastern Europe. Um, One region I have not really done a trend safari to is Latin and South America. That's the one area that I probably do need to go and uh, uh, spend some more time with. So uh, let me know if uh, that is of, of interest for you. And then, you know, back to the trend safaris, it's not about just seeing what you think is new and interesting, but it's always about translating it and making it real, doing something with it. Don't just sit there and wait for it to happen and let somebody else jump on the trend or wait for that validation. In some cases, you do need to take a risk. You do need to get out there and see and try and experiment. Um, If you fall back into that rut, as we talked about at the beginning at the top of the segment, about, you know, waiting for somebody else to do it, not really getting out there and trying it, uh, don't want to risk it, the the customer may not like this thing, that is, uh, that's going to hold you back, and that's really a limiting factor. Um, from the standpoint of if you go out there and you've identified what you think is that next trend, take the risk. If you want to stay connected with this and everything else that we're doing at Killer Innovations, text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., you can just send an email to innovate at killerinnovations.com. Um, if you can't tell, this week's show is all about inspiration. And today's guest is one who went looking for inspiration and found it in a unique project. So stay right there. You don't want to miss this. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So what is the strangest place you found inspiration? Now, I'm not talking about where, and no, the bathroom is not that strange, at least not for me. Now, Walt Disney was fond of saying, without inspiration, we would perish, I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations. Rather than a typical tech tech guest, today's guest comes from the art world. I got introduced to Noah Scallon through his art projects and his online uh, uh, kind of sites that I got introduced to by some friends. And I ended up writing a blog post um, about Noah and some of his projects uh, a while ago. 
Um, and actually, as a result of that, Noah reached out to me and we got introduced. We spent some time on the phone. And I've even gotten more into the work that he's doing, not only in his art projects, but also what he does outside of his direct art project. So this week, I want to welcome uh, Noah. And hey, Noah, thanks for giving us some time here to join us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. So in 15 seconds, how do you introduce yourself to someone you just met? Let's see. I'm an artist, an activist, an author, and a designer. That's five seconds, I think. <laughs> yeah. Were you always an artist? Because, you know, when I look, you know, how I got introduced to you is primarily from your, from your, your art projects and that. So is that where you got started at? Yeah, you know, my, both of my parents are artists. And so I think I'm one of those rare people who I knew I was an artist from day one because I grew up around art materials, always making art. In fact, when people would come over to my house when I was a kid, I'd say, let's go play in the studio. And they would look at me like, what's that? And I'd say, you know, the room you make art. You've got one of those, right? And I had no idea that it wasn't as common as a kitchen or a dining room. So, yeah, I could just imagine, you know, here, you know, every kid thinking that uh, every every house has a has a studio in it. So, when did you decide to make a career of it? Sounds like with your parents and and you being raised up, it was it just almost became like the, the natural thing that that you were just going to go do. Well, I knew I wanted to use my creative skills to make a living, but actually because my parents uh, both ended up having to do other things to make a living, I realized the fine art path wasn't going to be right for me. Uh, I was actually a really practical kid. So I actually went into the design world, originally theater design, as a means to be more practical, still not necessarily the most practical choice, but to be more practical about making a living, doing creative work where there was at least a job path. And right out of college, I ended up getting into graphic design. So in the case of graphic design, things like posters and logo works, those types of things? Yeah, I mostly focused on small businesses and nonprofits, but I did the whole gamut of marketing work, so everything from logos to brochures, postcards, mailers. I worked with a lot of theater companies because of my background in theater, and so I ended up doing a lot of really fun, creative work around marketing plays in New York. Oh, wow. That, I didn't realize that. So... Um, so in this case, though, you started off in, in doing that. Uh, then where, what, what's been your career progression to date then? Well, so I got, uh, you know, I did that for a very long time. I ended up getting out of school and going into the field, working for other people, doing in-house design for several years. And then I always wanted to run my own business, do freelance work. And so I ended up developing my business over the course of six years and then launched my own full-time company in 2001 uh, just doing graphic design marketing branding work uh, so and that that's what I did for for many many years yeah and so one of the ways I mean the way that you and I got um, introduced was is I'm a big believer in what I refer to as um, you know constraint-based innovation and that being around uh, you know, forcing yourself to have to do a certain amount of work within certain kinds of, of constraints. And actually, in, in episode 13 of the podcast, I uh, talked about this constraint-based innovation and mentioned you in some of your interesting projects that you kind of went off into um, to, uh, to apply kind of a, a constraint model to actually uh, kickstart your inspiration. So why don't you share a little bit about what, you, what, 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 was the, what led up to that effort? Sure. Yeah. So I've been doing this business and I love doing graphic design. It was really passionate. I love being creative for a living. But after several years of it, I just realized I'd lost my 
joy around it. I just wasn't excited by the work I was getting. I wasn't advancing either. I wasn't getting more money. I wasn't getting more interesting work, bigger clients. It just sort of stagnated and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And, uh, and I was like, I need to do something else. I've got to do something to, to reinvigorate myself. And so I literally was just walking through a park one day in the midst of this moment of feeling really stuck and uh, had this vision, really, a thought came to me fully formed. I should make a skull every single day for a year. Okay, so the, 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 this is the one I, that just, I can, can't get my head around. What inspired you that a skull was a good idea? I know it sounds totally crazy. And the only thing I could say is that everybody has weird thoughts going through their head all the time. It's this, I think most people ignore them. And as an artist, as a creative person, I can sometimes embrace those and grab them. And it was really just, I happen to like skulls. It's one of the many things that I find interesting. I grew up because I grew up as an artist. I grew up around uh, anatomical in imagery. I liked pirates. I liked archaeology. I liked biology. And so it was just a thing I happened to like. And I, and I really, you know, one of the things I learned from doing the project was that it's important to trust your gut and that if something just appeals to you and you have some passion around it, that's the thing to go for, uh, rather than being like, what do you think the world will like? I just happen to like skulls. It turns out, when I put them out to the world, the world liked them as well. Yeah, so, the, so this fully formed idea that you should do a skull a day, um, that was just for yourself, though. There wasn't really this intent, like you said, to, to meet some kind of market need or market demand. Absolutely. It was purely just so that I was creating my own work that I wasn't beholden to a client every day, make something I wanted to make and see if I could do it. You know, push my, myself really with this challenge of making something in a single day. And then I also decided to do different materials every day. So I was really pushing myself like challenging. OK, let me get through all the skills I know how to do and let me get into the realm of the unknown, the realm of the, you know, the unexpected and see where it takes me. Uh, but it really was for myself. And what was crazy was that was that really within two weeks it went viral. And so suddenly the entire world what felt like the entire world was watching and thousands and thousands of people were checking in every day saying, where's your skull today, Noah? <laughs> so it's, it, it, all of a sudden you now have, a, you have a, thousands of people looking over your shoulder, either encouraging you or judging, right? Yeah, and that, and that was terrifying, but basically all the really good stuff that came out of the project came because, in fact, I shared it with other people and didn't keep it to myself because I just got such an amazing response and this audience that just grew and grew. And even though the project was years and years ago, I still have a following that's growing continually. Uh, I like to say I'm in Skull-A-Day 9.0 now, basically. <laughs> and so, yeah, so this whole thing just that went viral and as a result, though, you, you've kind of got into a lot of different other areas. So we're going to cover that upcoming in this next segment, so stay right where you're at. If Noah, if people want to follow you, what's the best place where they can find you? If they'd like to see my own work, it's at noahscalen.com. You can see the Skull A Day project at skulladay.com. So we're not done. You'll want to hear the rest of what Noah has done, uh, kind of post his... Uh, Skull a Day Project, so stay right there. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network.
This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Many people think that the tricks, tools, or approaches from other industries cannot apply to what they are doing, and that somehow we're all unique and we're all special. Hogwash, and that's probably the nicest word I can say on national radio. Listen closely and see what you can learn from Noah and his work on how he found his inspiration in the art world and how sometimes even in the innovation and creative space, we all go through that dry spell. And sometimes we just kind of need to kickstart ourselves to, uh, you know, to get ourselves going again. You know, we all run through it, but I think what you can learn here from listening to Noah is really uh, finding that way to do your own special projects to help you get kickstarted. So let's pick up where we left off. You had success with the Scola Day. Then what happened? Well, what was interesting is that I suddenly started getting asked to talk about my work, to publish books about my work. And, you know, at first it was this sort of craft art audience that was interested, mainstream audience. But then suddenly businesses got interested, and I was asked to start talking to the clients of innovation companies. And I had no idea how what I was doing as an artist would apply, even as a designer in a commercial world. And so I sat and listened to them couching the, the stuff I was saying. And I was like, oh, look at this, this validity to the work I learned as an artist applying to people in businesses of all industries. And so that slowly led to me uh, going out and working directly with clients. And I now have a new consulting firm where I work with corporate clients all over the world about creativity and innovation, but rooted in the tools that artists use to keep themselves innovative and creative on a regular basis. So, yeah, and, and, and if I look at your, your, your the list of customers, it's everything from Fortune 50 companies and across a wide range of industries. So do you think your message then is resonating with them or is it, you know, do you or I mean do you get the feedback that they're actually it's actually engaging with them on this that they're actually taking it to heart? Absolutely. It, the amazing thing is over the last five years of working with one of my companies, I've watched them come closer and closer to what I've been teaching rather than uh, you know, me moving towards them. It's recognizing that they see a real need for this. Everybody, when I ask in a room these days, uh, you know, do you think you need creativity in your work? Is it a necessity? Regardless of industry, every hand just about in the room goes up. Of course, the other side is I go, do you think you're creative? And very few hands go up. And so there's a huge gap right now. And companies... I think the, the ones that are smart are recognizing this is what they need to stay ahead of the game if they want to be successful in a really volatile market. So, so I'm guessing that the listeners now are sitting at the edge of their seats wanting to know, so what are the three lessons that our listeners can apply to themselves to be more creative? You know, bundling up what you learned and what you share with your, with your, uh, with your uh, consulting clients, what are those three lessons? Sure. It's a tough one because I, I cover a lot of stuff, but I would say the ones that really resonate or cause the most sort of thought from people um, are, well, the first one I'll say is give things away. Uh, it's a really terrifying statement. I think people understand it uh, if they work in the tech industry because they know about open source. But I'm talking about bigger thing too because a lot of stuff is secret, projects that people don't share, uh, think that they're going to be really great if they just hold on to them. Uh, and it, it, what it turns out is that the more that you open up uh, the, yourself to other people, and that can be just with collaborating internally, the more likely you are to find really more interesting new solutions than just thinking you're going to do it on your own and keeping it to yourself. 
Great. And that's actually one that I've learned because, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I get people wanting to make me, you know, wanting me to sign a non-disclosure agreement before talking about the idea. And what I've learned in my career, the value is not in the idea. The value is in the execution, right? You want to differentiate yourself. It's not about just having an idea in your notebook. You got to get there and do it. So what's number two Uh, then? Number two, I would say, is uh, perfection is overrated. Uh, I'm a perfectionist. This is a terrible project for a perfectionist to do. Um, It's really about making more snowballs is the term I use. Really this idea about the more things you put out there, uh, the more likely you are to get a creative avalanche, a real innovative solution. Um, And it's not about perfecting everything you're creating, but it's really hard for people. I know especially in the tech industry, people want to be perfect about everything they do, and it can really stifle your creativity. I think some people know the phrase, great is the enemy of good, and I think that's another way to think of that. Yeah, well, in this case, I, I probably people who've worked for me over the years will resonate with my one quote that I constantly have to remind even myself on, that there, there comes a time in a life of a product where you have to shoot the engineer and ship it because we <laughs> yep. will tweak it and polish it and, you know, oh, one more thing or one little issue left. But in some cases, you just got to get out there and uh, – and not let that perfectionist attitude uh, take over. So, yeah, I mean, that's a great one. Well, one that I need to listen to more often. I'm actually writing myself a note here. <laughs> so, hard one what's to number learn. three? What, what, it's, oh, it's, impossible. it's very tough to learn. And I think, again, I think for those people of us, particularly in the tech field, we just, it just comes natural to us. So, yeah. what about number think, three? You know, it's about practice. Number three, uh, you know, I think a lot of people know the phrase ask forgiveness rather than ask permission. Uh, it, this is almost the opposite of that because I think the reality is there's a lot of times that people aren't asking uh, questions. They're really assuming uh, that things are going to happen a certain way. Oh, these are the rules. It must be this way. And so I'm really uh, advocating for people to ask the unasked question. What's the question right now in your mind that you've been avoiding asking because you just figure, well, I know the answer is no, so I'm not going to bother. What's the thing that you've been afraid to ask because you don't want to look like a fool? One of those is going to be the one that makes a big difference for you. Yeah, no, this, and you're speaking to an audience here that uh, um, over the last 11 years has all been about, you know, what are those questions and how do you ask questions that cause you to kind of look at the problem a different way. And out of that, when you tell people to ask questions, is there a favorite question that come up that was kind of surprising to you that was like, holy smokes, you know, I didn't (laughs) think of that? Yeah. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, You know, I think a lot of times people are asking me about how this stuff applies, and they're just saying, well, you know, I don't think I'm creative, and I don't see how this could apply to what I do. I'm an engineer. I'm a, you know, uh, I mean, I've talked to people who are building planes. I mean, I've talked to people who are working in energy. Uh, and so it's, you know, when, they, when they're sort of asking that sort of generalized question, like, well, what's the point of how does skulls relate to me? Uh, you know, I'm kind of shocked because I'm saying, look, your bosses had me come here to talk to you. Clearly, there's a value. But what's great is by the end, they see it and, they, and that it resonates. But it's about, for me, it's about not only sharing with a story of what I do as an artist, but getting people to try it themselves and practice it. And once they've done it and they've embodied it, they really recognize the value in it. And so we have a, we have a motto where, where we're basically saying, like, uh, creativity is a practice, the idea that you've got to just do it, right? That's going to make the difference. Yeah, well, again, you know, you and I are on the same page on this. And part of it is, is you can read about it, you can listen to a radio show, you can listen to a podcast, you can take a Udemy course, you know, whatever. But sitting back, listening, and reading is not going to get you there. It's, you've got to get out there and just try it. You've got to, even if it's just for yourself in a, 
little notebook you keep in your bedside stand where you're not going to show it to anybody, but you've got to get out there, like you say, and practice it. And it, it just for me, it just seems like it's so I can't I can't get over the fact that how hard it is for people just to get out and just try it. There's just this huge fear. How do you get them over there just to get out there and just do it and try it? It's incredibly daunting, and that's why really what I'd push for is to do very small actions. Try to pick the tiniest, most doable, easy thing you can imagine. Give yourself a very small amount of time to do it. Don't stress out about the perfection of it. Um, and then it's about just doing it over and over and over. And actually, my company developed a thing we call the Creative Sprint, specifically to get companies uh, trying things out on a daily basis over a 30-day period so they can see uh, the results of it. And we've had, we just did a test launch in April, and we're about to launch uh, officially in October. And even from the test launch, we saw amazing results from people just willing to try little teeny things. We even give the inspiration to what to hear. Try this, and it really makes a difference. That's interesting because I think you're right. I think it is. Can you, if you can break it down into a small enough, you know, if you can chunk it down, I guess is how I refer to it, and get it so that's low risk. Try it out very quick, and it's almost it seems like you almost got to do you know, confidence building. Is that the right word? Confidence building for them. Sure, I would say, because I think a lot of people are afraid and they don't want to show imperfect work or they don't want to try something they've never done before. I mean, I know that. I feel the same way. It's daunting to me, too. But the second that I do it, I discover the benefits of it because immediately you start getting great feedback. You feel good about completing a task. It allows you to get to other tasks. And all that stuff just builds and builds and builds. Yeah, and I think that's the point. And at some point, then... You know, it's almost like having uh, training wheels on, on, on the bicycle, right? You get the little bit of the training wheels, then you run alongside, you hold on to the bike, and then eventually, eventually you let go, and then they're off on their own. I think that's the right way to put it, because really it's about momentum. And what we found is that, you know, an object in motion tends to stay in motion, right? And so it's the hardest thing is to get started. And so we're always talking about, like, what's the smallest thing? Because that's the thing. If you can get that rolling action, if you get that movement going, you can build on that. So, Noah, if people want to follow what you're doing, how can they find you? So you can check out my consultancy at anotherlimitedrebellion.com. And if people want to sign up for the Creative Sprint this October, it's at creativesprint.co. Great. Noah, I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us. When we're back, I've got a killer question that's going to hack your brain. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So did you do your homework last week? My objective is to give you challenges that will cause you to exercise your creative muscle. If you haven't started, it's easy. Just go out and buy yourself a small notebook. Now, I'm a big fan of moleskins. Um, I have a very specific uh, uni-ball pen I use. I'm a little bit of a fanatic. Drives my wife crazy. But just go out and find yourself a small notebook, grab any pen, and for each exercise each week, write it on a page, and then each morning, give yourself 15 minutes and just work on it. 
And as the week goes by, it becomes easier. Just as you do if you go to the gym right after your New Year's resolution and you start walking and then you start jogging and then you start running and then pretty soon you're competing in marathons. It's the same thing when you're exercising your creative muscles. And just think about it. You're not paying a gym membership for your creative muscles. You're getting it for free. So questions are a mind hack. Your brain cannot stop itself from answering it. It's one of the key tools that I discovered decades ago and have used it repeatedly. I've collected questions. There's probably about 140 or 150 questions in my list right now. Um, So what's what's the question for this week? The question for this week is, what are the unshakable beliefs about what your customers want? What are those unshakable beliefs about what your customers want? Now, the one thing is is to know what your customers want to do and others to understand how they intend to get it done. Now, unshakable beliefs also are those things where inside your organization, people have kind of built up this folklore of what customers want, what customers will like, what customers will not like, and we stop ourselves from actually going out and testing it. We've got what we think of as absolute and perfect information from history and therefore try to apply it. Now, it's easy to look at their goals and tell yourself that your product will match their needs. You think you understand them and you know what your product or service is and you think you can match it. But most organizations make major assumptions about what the customers want and that's how they become these unshakable beliefs. And competing companies can have the same unshakable beliefs, but radically different strategies on how to achieve them. The example here, Airbus and Boeing. Both companies brought new long-range aircraft to market at pretty much the same time. However, their respective offerings, the A380 and the 787 Dreamliner, reflected radically different ideas of how airlines will meet the needs and desires of the passengers. For instance, some of the objectives were both companies understood the bottom line in the airline industry is what they call CASM, C-A-S-M, which is cost per available seat mile. And you want to get that as low as possible. Both claim their aircraft are fuel efficient. Each use radically new technology. 787 is made with some lightweight, high durable materials. The A380 boasts new integrated avionics systems. However, the A380 and 787 reflect completely different philosophies about how passengers will get from one destination to the other. The A380 is a hub-to-hub aircraft. Its size limits the airports it can service. Yes to London, yes to LAX, Los Angeles, but even there, LAX had to build a special place to park the plane for the A380. And also, you can land it in Singapore, but you can't take it to Cleveland or Oslo or Fort Lauderdale. Boeing is betting the other way. The 787 is small and nimble enough to service the second-tier cities, yet its fuel efficiency allows it to function as a long-range aircraft. Airbus and Boeing both ask themselves the exact same question. What are your unshakable beliefs about what your customers want? Yet they veered off in completely different directions based on what they believed the customer's needs and wants were. Now the jury's out as to who made the better bet. But my gut instinct is that both companies will struggle before eventually finding sufficient market share to justify their gamble. Um, Innovation isn't always about beating your competitors. It really is getting out there and understanding 
your customers, not by having some unshakable belief, but actually engaging with the customers, being face-to-face with the customers and talking with them directly. So as a reminder, this week's killer question is, what are your unshakable beliefs about what your customers want? So your assignment this week, identify five unshakable beliefs your customer has, your company has about your customers. And for each, generate five ideas if that belief were not true, such as customers always want X or they never want Y. So five, five unshakable beliefs and generate five ideas for each of them. So you may be surprised about how many unshakable beliefs are not true. And why five? It's what I call an idea quota. It's really just to kind of get you kick-started. So get your notebook out and start exercising. And, and if you finish up those exercises, those homeworks and those exercises, send them to me at phil at killerinnovations.com. And I'll share the best ones on the show. Or if you market private and you just want to have a, a private back and forth, you can send them to me, again, at phil at com, And I will reply with my thoughts on your ideas. I reply to all of my emails. So go ahead and email away. And don't think you only have the one week. If you're listening to this podcast after the broadcast date, go ahead, do the homework, drop me a note. And more importantly, as we talked in the last segment, Get out there and do it. Sitting by, listening to this podcast, and then forgetting about it. Start today. Get the notebook. Write down the challenge. Work on it. It'll generate great ideas for your current business or idea that you really want to bring to market. But the key is, is I cannot do it for you. You need to take it on. So... Uh, a few years back, I created a two-hour audio course on how to create cultivations. It's on Amazon and sells for like $19 from the publisher, which is crazy. So I've decided to give it away in digital download so you can get it for free. How? Just text the word INNOVATE to 33444. Or if you're outside the U.S., you can just send an email to INNOVATE at KillerInnovations.com. And I'll send you an email with the links to download the audio course for free. Now, now, you can feel free to tell your coworkers and friends, give them the text code, again, innovate at 33444, or tell them just to send me an email, and uh, I'll go ahead and send it to all your friends and coworkers also. And while you're at it, make sure to check out theconnovations.com. The new site is live. Um, it's a place where you get plugged in. Also, don't miss out on the great shows over the BizTalk Radio Network. Visit biztalkradio.com. And while you're at it, grab the mobile app, and you can listen to Killer Innovations uh, live. If you know another innovator with an interesting show, drop me a note. Uh, today's show was engineered by Brandon, who has the difficult task of trying to keep me on track and on schedule. I'm Phil McKinney. Don't let the innovation antibodies get you down and keep on innovating. We'll talk to you next week. The opinions you hear on Biz Talk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, Biz Talk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on Biz Talk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about Biz Talk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. Biz Talk Radio. 